number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where interesting, intriguing, and exciting people engage in unscripted exchanges of ideas, stories, and perspectives. It's not an interview. It's a powerful conversation. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where we go into deeper conversations with incredible people and talk to them about their lives, about their industry, and about life uh, as it unfolds for them. And today, I got to tell you, I have an individual who... I gotta, I gotta say, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly nervous. Almost, I think, I'm, I think I'm a little bit uh, intimidated by my guest. Uh, that doesn't always happen for me because this individual is no other than Terry O'Reilly, who has done so many incredible things. I know you, most of you already know about Terry, but for those of you who have not had a chance to delve too deep into his own world, Terry is an author, he's a producer, he's an international speaker, he's the host of the hit show, Under the Influence, and uh, through the work he's done in radio, the New York radio festivals have awarded him his, uh, his own radio show, The Grand Prize. Uh, as best radio program in 2011 and again in 2012 and iTunes you may have heard of those guys they've chose it as the best new podcast of 2011 and one of the best podcasts of uh, 2015 on top of that Terry co-founded Pirate Radio and Television uh, a creative audio production company producing scripts sound and music for radio and television commercials and their staff grew to a size of 50 which is a lot of people uh, with eight recording studios in Toronto and New York He's won hundreds of national and international awards for his writing and directing and has worked with such notable names as Alec Baldwin, Ellen DeGeneres, Kiefer Sutherland, Bob Newhart, Martin Short, and Drew Carey. And if that's not enough, he has co-written a best-selling book called The Age of Persuasion, How Marketing Ate Our Culture. And that was published in Canada by Knopf uh, and in the U.S. by Counterpoint Press in Berkeley. Uh, and he has a book. I'm not sure if it's the newest book, but it is his latest book. It's titled This I Know, Marketing Lessons from Under the Influence. And I know that Terry's working on a new book, which we're going to talk about today. Holy mackerel, how's that for an intro for you, Terry? Well, it's great to be here, Stuart. Thanks for having me. What's it, what's it like, to be honest, to just sit back and listen to people talk about all of those accomplishments is it weird to hear you know to to know that you've done all of that and i and i had to cut your bio down otherwise the show would have been two days <laughs> it is weird to hear all that it really is it's uh because you know life is very is very fleeting and you don't have a <clears throat> even your career is really quite short when you get into it it's really you know you you kind of build up your career in your 20s and then you kind of hit your stride in your 30s and then in your 40s that's your your big time to really you know, make it or break it. And then in your 50s, they're ushering you out the door. So it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a short little window. So to hear all that, I, I, I am amazed. Do you ever find yourself, though, even with all the accomplishments that you've had, and I ask you this because I know that I sometimes feel like this, where I will read an article about somebody who's do doing something incredible, and I think to myself, oh, my God, I've, I've done nothing. <laughs> like, I'll give you an example. I was just the other day, I'm not sure if you know this, and I, and I think I read this correctly, 
but that um, they call him Mayor Pete. I can't remember. It's, it's Booty Egg, I think his last name is. Yeah. He, he's one of the guys running for president of the United yeah. States. Do you know he's 37 years old? Yeah, I do know that. That's crazy. I mean, I can't even – when I was 37 years old, my, my company was just beginning to get off the ground. Yeah, yeah. That, that's pretty young to be a, a, a mayor, for starters, mm -hmm. and to be a contender for the president of the United States. That's a, That would be a pretty amazing thing to have somebody that young in the office. So how do you feel then if you uh, – like, do you, ever, do you have those moments of slight intimidation where you think, even though you've done so much, you look at people and think, wow, that person – you know, Mark Zuckerberg, he's a billionaire. He's what, 20? Yeah. No, I do. I do have those moments, especially when I look at people who – I saw a great picture, Stuart, the other day on Twitter. And what it was was Jeff Bezos sitting at his office desk in something like 1994, and it said Amazon on a really bad piece of paper stuck to the wall. And it was just him with a, with a computer and a phone. Oh, my goodness. Like the whole company, Stuart, was sitting right there in that shot. It was just him and an idea. Oh, and, when, wow. and, he's my, and he's my age. And I, I look at what he achieved in the same amount of time that I've been you know, in my career. And, and it's astounding to me that he could build a company that big in that short a time. So I do have those moments of, of awe. It is, it's crazy, isn't it? And so yeah. th th that leads me to a question I want to ask you because I, I want to know – Based on when you look at the world around you and the things that other people have accomplished and the stuff that you've accomplished yourself, what does success and happiness look like to you? Because when I think about a guy like Jeff Bezos, there's a part of me that wonders what motivates him to keep going. I mean, he's got all the money in the world. He's mm -hmm. managed to produce the biggest company on the planet. And I always just wonder why he still works so hard. I would just think I would want to just dedicate my time to charities and to my family. But so for you then, where, like, how do you manage your time so that you really um, uh, live out the way that you define success and happiness? So what does it look like for you and how do you do it? Well, happiness for me is family. I'm a big family guy. I have three daughters and a wonderful wife. And uh, if, if I was, if, when I ask myself, when am I absolutely happiest? It's when I have all my daughters around me. Okay. When we're all in the same place at the same time, I just mm. cannot, I can never get enough of that. It doesn't happen as much as I'd like because my oldest daughter lives in London, England. So it's not as easy for all of us to get together now, but I do love that. And I, and I have to say, I also love spending time with my wife, Debbie. We are uh, not just life partners, but business partners. Right. And, uh, we love spending time together and we always have, and it's always better when we're together. So it's, uh, that for me, career aside that really is the pinnacle of happiness for me so then when you get asked to do all the things you do whether it's to speak in other countries or to appear on a podcast like mine how do you really learn how to say no because you have to say no i'm guessing all the time in order to make sure you do have that time to spend uh, it with the people that you love the most uh, that's a very insightful question and i do say no quite a lot and the reason I say no, Stuart, is not that I don't think the opportunity is wonderful, is that a lot of the time, the time to do that has to come out of family time. Right. In other words, my days are chock-a-block, because I'm, I'm working 10 to 12-hour days, and I don't, like, seven days a week when my show's on the air. That's how intense the show is. Right. Or I'm, tra and I'm you know, even when I travel, I'm riding the show in an airplane. I'm, I'm the only guy with the light on in the, in the airplane flying back from Vancouver, you know, You're that, that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. I am. <laughs> or I'm riding in hotel rooms and it never stops. So 
so I do say no when it'll bite into family time because I'm very protective of that time. And and even when I was, you know, in your 30s, in particular in your 30s, if you have a young family, your 30s and particularly your 40s probably are, the, I call them the rush hour years of your life right. where your family is needs the most attention because they're young and they're and they're growing up and you've and your career is kicking into high gear and there's that really difficult balancing act between career and family. But I, I have to give credit to my wife, Debbie, for making me a better dad because there were times, so many times in the advertising business, which is very, not very family friendly. Right. The ad business doesn't really welcome spouses. Mm -hmm. You know, at Christmas parties, they're never invited. At award shows, there's never tickets for them. Like there's, it's really, and the divorce rate is off the charts in, in advertising. No kidding. But my, yeah, so my wife, you know, I would be calling home saying, I have to work late tonight on a project that's due, you know, in the morning. And she'd say, no, you're coming home because we have a dance recital tonight. And then after that's done, you can do your your, your project. Right. I go, right. you are correct. So, I, you know, and it, it took a, a quite a few of those moments for me to realize that there that you can be a good dad and be in business. It's just going to take a strain. You, you know, you can't have it all. You just can't have it all at the same time. Right. Right. right? So I realized I could be a good, better dad. I'll, I'll say a better dad and, uh, and still get the work done. It may mean that I'm up till two or three in the morning, but so be it. Okay. Okay. So then when you think about the, you know, I, I would imagine that you probably don't pat yourself enough as most dads don't on the back, uh, for the great job that you've done. So besides, really making time for your daughters, what would you say has made you a great dad? Well, I just, I don't know how to answer that. I, I really just, I just love spending time with my, with my daughters. I just, they are to this day, I just sit back and just marvel at them. So it was losing time with them was, was always such a, uh, a sacrifice for me. And you know, it's funny cause I did travel a lot and did work a lot of late nights and, about, uh, I'd say this summer sometime, we were all sitting at our cottage. We were all together, one of those wonderful moments, and we were talking about those years. And I said to my daughters, Did, do you resent the amount of time I had to travel or the amount of days or nights that I had to work late? And all three of them said, we have no memory of that, Dad. Oh. Which is astounding to me because, Stuart, you know, in this business, you're traveling all the time. I mean, right. I'm in, I was in Los Angeles all the time, and that's like a three-day three proposition at best. Sure. You know, and they, and they remarkably, they really had no memory of that. So I, I took that as a wonderful thing to say because that means that, that I guess when I was home, I really was really home. I was present in the moment. You know, that's so nice for me to hear because – it is guilt that I constantly feel because, um, as you, as you know, I have young children. I started a little bit late in life, so I'm I'm now 45, and and uh, I have a three and a half and a one and a half year old, mm. and so uh, I, as you know, I have not slept for almost three years. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. right. I mean, I actually every time you answer a question, I just have a quick nap. <laughs> so, but I know um, more of you speak. <laughs> see these, but, but I, I I have felt guilty about being on the road, and I I, I try to FaceTime in and my daughter gets pouty and and it's so refreshing to know that there's a, a likelihood that one day um, I will not have scarred her <laughs> in, in the way that you I'm know, convinced I am 
What's interesting too, what you bring up is social media has really, it, what, see my oldest daughter is over 30, so, right. and my other daughters are in their mid 20s. So really social media when they were young did not exist. Right. And uh, FaceTime I think has made a big difference because uh, even though my oldest daughter lives in another country across the ocean, we we see her every week and we'll even have dinner together. Like it'll be our lunch and her dinner, but we'll actually have eat together. No way. Yeah, so it's uh, it's really made the distance seem not quite as traumatic for us. And I, I, when you say you, you know you Facetime your your kids when you travel, I get it. Yeah, that that and that's I mean back in the day, like with thirty years ago, uh, I guess the only thing that you had available was was a phone call. And let's face it, yep. I mean a phone call from L.A. back was like thirty bucks a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and the time difference didn't help when you have young kids either. Right? Yeah, that's so, true. And then then there was the delay. You'd say yeah, something, exactly. and then two hours later, they heard, heard you. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so let, let's switch gears for a second, because we, we, I know you've been in, in the world of advertising for most of your life, and, and, and so when you think about advertising today, uh, the way it is, and the role it plays in our society, what do you love about it? Like, what do you love about the role that it plays, and what maybe don't you love about the role it's currently playing in our lives? I've, I have loved my career from day one, okay. and... I've just I love the business of advertising and marketing. I always have. And what I what I personally love about it is the puzzle of marketing. Mm. Uh, because every project is different. Every project is a bit of a snowflake. So you always have to figure out, you know, what what is the insight and how can I wrap that insight in a creative selling idea? And then how can I sell this kind of calculated risk to the client and how can I convince the client to do it? And then how can I pull it off once I've sold? Like all of that has has just thrilled me for almost 40 years and I, I still feel the same way about it. So that that's what I love about advertising for me. Okay. I think in the world at large, I think advertising really does deliver a wonderful service and that is it, it keeps companies competitive, it keeps them healthy because advertising generates revenue and it sells products and and I think in our in our economy it's one of the it's w the WD40 of the economy. It just keeps right. the economy lubricated and moving. So I think it it really does fulfill when people kind of throw stones at advertising for various reasons or wish all advertising would disappear. I think I'm not sure people would love the world that would leave behind because uh, you're only six six Kevin Bacon's away from needing advertising in your life because <laughs> right. you know even a hospital steward you know when you see wings of hospitals donated by wealthy business people you know the you know the you know the blah blah wing of the general hospital that that is the result of somebody's successful business spinning off enough revenue that they can donate it to a hospital. That's a great point. So yeah, like it's. And I don't mean to make too much of advertising, but it's it does touch a lot of lives. It's there's almost no business that doesn't it isn't doesn't need some form of marketing, even if it's a, um, a philanthropy. You still need to generate money and donations. So I think it it does fulfill its purpose in that. Even my company, Pirate. I mean, we would do literally hundreds of public service announcements pro bono every year really and and we would do it happily yeah right. we would do because every agency we worked with had multiple pro bono clients and then they would come to us to do the pro bono work and we would happily do it but at the end of the year where that would add up to hundreds of public service announcements right so we and and even i would occasionally call a charity or some something i read in the news a charity that i thought was doing great work and i would call them up and i'd say you can't afford us <laughs> 
But here's but here's what I'm going to offer you. If you give us creative freedom, we'll we'll create you a great advertising campaign at no charge. Wow. And I and that was really a wonderful reciprocal thing because they got great work charities, you know, and then I would find them free airtime on radio stations across the country because I had a lot of connections. But we would also get a creative exercise of doing something, giving my staff, my our writers and directors a really great piece of work to work on. That's it. So we. We would do a lot of that. And then the bad side of advertising is in our in my first book that you mentioned in your introduction, uh, we called it the the great unwritten contract. Okay. And what we mean by that is that advertising underwrites a lot of the entertainment in the world. So, you know, the ads in magazines pay for the writers, the ads in the new, in the newspaper pay for the journalists, the ads on television pay for the programming, etc. <clears throat> so, in order to to for us to have people sit through our advertising, we have to give something back. So that's what the trade-off is. You listen to the ad, we'll underwrite the programming. I see. Okay. When, so, so, but when, so let me yeah. just finish. Doing it. So when advertising doesn't give back, that's the problem. So even right. a, even a bus even a bus shelter, you know, full of ads gives something back because it's sheltering you from the rain. Mm, right? Okay. Billboards, not so much. That industry really needs to figure out how to give back, right? Because there's no there's no give back in billboards, right. or there's no give back at in theater advertising when you're at a movie and you have to sit through ten minutes of ads. It's not like the ticket prices come down. Right. So there's just times when advertising doesn't give back, and I think that is the biggest problem. Do you think then beyond just advertising, would you identify that maybe as a problem that we face in the world in general? So when you think about the way that people build businesses, the uh, obviously the goal is to build a business that maximizes profits, especially for your shareholders if you're that large of a business and, and, you've, and you're yeah. on the stock exchange. So if that's the case, um, in order to give back, quite often companies will see that as an expense, and that expense is going to come across, come off profits. And for that reason, we don't see as many companies giving back in the way that we might like to see. But do you feel, though, that the idea of just giving back is actually a strategy to success? I do. I, I do feel that way. Okay. I think, um, see, in business, when you're at, at that realm and when you're in that rarefied era of having stock stockholders and, and you're on the stock exchange and that kind of pressure, it's very tough to quantify that, you know, philanthropy or, or giving back because it does look like an expense. But I, I really believe that it is, uh, it, it, it brings waves of goodwill. It helps your staff feel good about what they do. If they feel there's a mission beyond profit at the company. And I think it's, it's, it takes a great leader to just instill that drive in a company to want to do good in the world, not just make money in the world. And I think it all starts at the top. And uh, that's why you need leaders and not bosses. And that's, you know, that's a, it's a very rare thing to find. I agree. I agree. And, and, and I've always just wondered why it is that more organizations don't get this. Because when you read an article about some company that has decided to build houses in Africa and they're spending however many millions of dollars doing it. And then there's this really odd almost way in which you can trace that back to greater profits. Um, And and that was never their intention. It just happens. I think it makes, I think it makes for happier workers, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, if you're, if you're, 
I want to do a whole episode on this, and I touch on this very often over the years in my show, but internal culture of a company is critically important. And, you know, what you are on the inside is really what you project on the outside. Right. So, you know, and, and the, the greatest disconnect that uh, marketing has is when a company has a rosy marketing campaign, then you go into the store and it's a miserable staff. Right. You know, where they treat you poorly or they don't care about you or they're not attentive. That disconnect is really what kills a lot of marketing. Right. And I think that is the result of bad company culture at work there. So I think having a philanthropic uh, part of or division or or mission in your company, I think it makes people happy. So they're happy to do that and they're happier in their work. And if they're happier in their work, you do that math and it, it results in higher profit because everybody's just working and wants to be there. Right, right. Well, and then do you, what do you think about then just across the board with respect to just having that purpose? Because when you want to be there, we, we all know that it's the purpose that drives you. It's the idea that you are making the world a better place or that the work you do matters um, to other people. And it could be something as simple as I make uh, the front end loader of a tractor and there are farmers out there that are using those tractors to put food on the table for other people. Um and I know that if I can build this front end loader, whatever, that much better, uh, and I'm using the word front end loader like, cause yeah. that, like, like that's a term, like as if I even know. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you if you didn't know, Terry, now yeah. you know. I know. Um, Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> my pleasure. And uh, yeah, but you know, it's like to, just to find that purpose in what you do. And you were talking earlier on about you're the guy on the plane and you've got the laptop open while everyone's watching movies or sleeping. Yeah. And I've often seen these individuals and quite often I'll look over and I'll see some person with their laptop open and I'll see them looking at spreadsheets and yeah. numbers. And I just want to tap them on the shoulder and say, dude, really? Like you really, no, I get there's always the exception to the rule that there are individuals who love numbers, but let's face it. They're not as common as people may believe. And, I just think, how do you get out of bed in the morning? Like, What is your purpose? And I think that this is the reason why when you cut somebody off mistakenly in traffic, they pull up to the next light and they want to blow your brains out because yeah. they they live a life of, of zero purpose. So you had that purpose. You enjoy uh, knowing that as you're working on the computer that this is going to be something that's going to you know, influence somebody's life in a positive way. But so many people don't have that. And do you think that this is something that we as a species need to take more seriously and essentially almost rejig the entire system so that more people are living a life of purpose with the work that they do? I, I do think that, Stuart, and that, that's a big, heavy question you're asking. Mm -hmm. And as a, as a business owner, you know, you always struggle with trying to keep your staff really happy. It's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's not a easily done thing, and it's a constant thing. It's not like you can just implement something and you're done for the next three years. Right. It's really difficult. You know, I, I read a book recently that I'm going to talk about in an upcoming episode. It's called Just the Funny Parts. And I don't know if you've read it, Stuart. I haven't. Yeah, you will. You'll enjoy this. So it's written by Nell Scovell. And okay. she was she is one of the great comedy writers in Hollywood. So she's worked on The Simpsons, Late Night with David Letterman, uh, The Muppets, Newhart, Murphy Brown. She's wow. written jokes for uh, Obama. Anyway, in it's a wonderful book about a woman trying to get into the boys club of Hollywood sitcom rooms. OK. Anyway, 
She says in her book, this, she, she gives this, this philosophy in her book, which I thought was so interesting. And she said, don't follow your dreams, hmm. follow your talent. Okay. And I thought that was so insightful because I think a lot of people dream of maybe earning a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And then they'll choose a, a, a career that is, you know, that it, the chances of earning money are great in it, but they'll, they won't be happy on the journey. Right. Or their parents will, you know, stick handle them away from a, a career in the arts and stick them into a, an accounting course because right. that seems more reasonable a, a career. And I think when you're talking about happiness, that's what where I'm driving with this. I really think that's such an insightful thing to say is don't follow your dreams follow your talent because if you follow your talent you will always be happy interesting that is such an interesting way of looking at things you know i just recently did a speech at the university of waterloo and i was speaking to the i think it was the second year finance students and there were about 500 people in the crowd and when I was speaking to the audience, uh, well, I shouldn't even say when I was speaking, when I walked into the room, I looked out and I would say about 450 of the faces were Asian. Yeah. And all I wanted to say at the beginning of my presentation was, so just before we go any further, you're going to tell me that all of you want to go into finance and accounting. Like, right. you're clear that this is your right. passion. Well, yeah. And they and I know for sure it's 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 parental pressure. It's yeah. and I I've always found that interesting where you'll see certain industries where there are particular cultures who more often than not do that thing. So dentistry might have one culture and then you might see doctors having a yes. different culture. And um and and you just think to yourself, I wanted to I wanted to say to the room, so like did none of you pick up a paintbrush when you were a kid? Yeah, and surely some of you don't want to be here, if not most of you. And and I and I and I I say this jokingly, but quite frankly, I get many of them coming up to me at the end of my presentations, feeling like they can confide in me, which they can, and saying, you know, this really isn't what I want to do. How, what, what would your suggestion be, and how do I get out of it? Yeah. Like, yeah. oh my god, I think you know what, Stuart. I think a lot of that goes on. Mm-hmm. We had we have friends, very dear friends. Their son is this great musician. He wanted to pursue a career in music, and they talked him out of it and put him right into a business course. And he's miserable. Yeah, and and they don't see it. That's they right. don't see why they just they just think he's not trying. That's that's their complaint about him. And I just know that that's not his talent. That's, that's not right. his calling. Right. I have to say this too, Stuart. My parents were really quite wonderful because in the seventies, when we were talking about me, you know, making the leap to university. They said, what do you want to do? And and uh, I said, I want to get into the world of, at that time in the 70s, I said, I want to get into television and radio. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where yet, but that's kind of what I want to go, uh, I want to pursue. And, and my parents, you know, my dad worked in the mine in Falconbridge. He was not underground. He was uh, on the surface in the purchasing department, but spent his whole career working for a mine. Okay. And my mom was a career nurse. So here I was saying, I want to get into the arts and I don't even know where in the arts I want to land. They just said, go get them. No kidding. So you know what? Even that is huge because they just let me go. They let me follow my my heart. Why do you think they did that? I don't know. I well, they're beyond just being wonderful parents. You know, I look at my dad, and he is uh, a wonderful singer. He's 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 eighty eight, and he still sings in a choir. He's got one of those Bing Crosby voices. Lovely. He was, uh, he's a great artist that never draws. Okay. He is, 
um, I found this old, and I didn't even know this about him. I found rummaging through the, some box in my parents' basement. I found all these clippings from the fifties of my father directing plays no in Sudbury, in the newspaper, pictures of him direct. And I didn't even know that. About, like I, w I became a director in my life. I was, I was a director for twenty-five years. Okay. So here was a man who was very arts-driven, very artistic, but in that era, you were never, you, you could not pursue that. As a, as a career and raise a family and as a rule in the 50s right? right so maybe maybe part of that was my dad thinking i'm not gonna ha let that happen to my son like oh. just do it i'm guessing this Stuart. we've never even had this conversation my dad and i okay and my mom is my mom is uh is a nurse so she just oozes empathy right she and i think I inherited that from her in that. Okay. I think in order to be a good ad person or to be a good writer, you have to have buckets of empathy. Right. To put, you felt, you put yourself in the shoes of the person you're trying to reach or, or put yourself in the shoes of somebody you want to touch with some writing. I think so b between the two of them, I think – I got a lot of, of whatever I am, but I also think they looked at their lives and thought, you know, have more freedom in your choices than we had. Right, right. Her perspective was, I guess, as long as you don't buy a motorcycle, yeah, <laughs> I don't care what you do with yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Well, you know, I actually, it's funny that you say this, I had the exact opposite experience where I had graduated from the School of Business and Economics at Wilfrid Laurier University. And I, to this day, I mean, we're talking, what, 25 years later, I remember the restaurant I was sitting in with my parents for lunch, and I had just graduated, and I said, I think I don't want to do the corporate thing. Uh, and they said, okay. And I said, I kind of think I just want to try maybe this speaking thing or writing thing, or artistic thing. And I will never forget the look of disappointment in their faces, especially my mother's. And for them, they, they're that classic uh, immigrant story. They came to Canada from another country with the intention of creating a better life for their kids. And um, they, can, they came to Canada with $150. Wow. And so for them, we were the first people in the history of both sides of the family to ever even get a degree in college or university. And now I was basically saying I didn't want to use it. And, um, and, and, and for most of my life, I think that even now to this day that I'm – now that I'm successful in my career – I still carry that guilt with me, mm. and I still find myself trying to convince my parents, especially my mother, that I've made the right decisions. So right. it could be a, a new business I'm launching, and I will notice in the conversation in the room that um, – Let's say my father's listening and my, my brother might be listening, but my mother might be, I don't know, playing with her nails. And I'm really sensitive to it. And I'll say, Mom, are you listening? Like, like do, do you not think this is a good idea? And this is me as a grown man with children. I own property. I, I've traveled yep. the world as a speaker, and I still want her acceptance. Yeah. And that, to me, is, um, is, is, is unfortunate. And, and, and I think this is, you know, why... We need to give people permission to be the best version of themselves they possibly can be. You know, Stuart, that story just reminded me of something. I, re I wish I had cut it out and I didn't, but I read in the Globe and Mail many years ago. And I wish I could remember the percentage because this is the point of this little story. The percentage of people 
who change careers when their second parent dies is off the charts. Really? Yeah. So that tells you everything about the the rut people find themselves in is they choose careers, and that's the biggest chunk of your life. They choose wow. careers to keep their parents happy. And then when, when their last parent dies, passes away, that's when they feel the freedom. And that's when you probably see a lot of people making these crazy career choices in their 50s. Wow. Right? When you think, guy, he's been an accountant for 40 years and now he's doing stand-up? <laughs> you know, that kind of like we left an albuquerque. That's just crazy, right? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So how do you then, you knowing how important this is to um, let somebody be what it is they want to be, how did it influence you as a father with your three daughters? Did you just sit back and let them make their own choices or did you maybe go the other route and actually promote on a daily basis? Hey, I don't give a crap what it is. Go out there and live your dreams. Like what, what was your approach to that? I would say it was the latter. It was, uh, and my wife and I felt strongly about that, that whatever it is you want to pursue, do it. Okay. Now we did want them to go to college and university. We say, well, we do ask that, but you choose what you want to do mm -hmm. and then away you go and we'll be, and we'll support you. And that's, and that's, I was just really, there's no way I could have said anything else. Right. And my wife felt exactly the same way. So it was really, cause as I, as I've said, you know, so many times already in this conversation, I just saw it in other friends and I saw it in the children of, of, of good friends of ours, not being given that freedom. Okay. And what are your children doing today? The uh, oldest is a school teacher in London, England, something she's wanted to be a teacher, Stuart, since she was about six. No kidding. Yeah, like she's truly following her heart on that. Uh, and the and the other two actually work in our company. We have a family company, so they are uh, working on the radio show, and we're about to launch a podcast company, so uh, we are all getting that off the ground right now. And that part of that, by the way, just on this very subject, Part of the reason we're starting a company with two of our daughters is that we want to teach them how to be entrepreneurs. Right. So we're starting this company, getting it off the ground. So they are talking to the lawyers and getting all the legal issues cleared up. We brief them before. So here's what you have to talk to the lawyer about. And then they get on the phone and have all those conversations and they talk to the bank. and they, All of that That's is great. part of teaching them how to be entrepreneurs. Someone recently asked me uh, if, there, if there's one thing that you could impart to your children uh, based on being a father right now, what would it be? I didn't even flinch. I said – Oh, it would be for me to teach them how to become entrepreneurs. Yeah. Uh, because when I look at the world that we live in, I mean, I can't tell you how many friends, I'm sure it's the same for you, who I've seen who've worked for companies for years and really dedicated their lives to these organizations only to be let go because of downsizing or some other company yep. comes along and buys it and you just lose control. And if, if you're an entrepreneur, if you know how to, uh, to make something from nothing, uh, yep. you are the one who's, who's got full control. Now, now, but let me ask you though. So here you are, watching them, I would imagine, making many mistakes. How do you help them uh, learn from their mistakes? Or how do you um, hold back from saying, listen, that's not the way I would have said it. I, for example, today, one of, um, to my own partner, I said to her, she had uh, wanted. She had to remind one of our clients that they did. They did not pay the invoice. Uh, sorry, yeah. they, did, they did not pay the fifty percent deposit. They had missed that, right. and so she had said in her email, uh, "Hey, listen, I just want to let you know that you didn't pay the fifty percent deposit." And in my feedback, I said, "In the future, it's just a bit better to say the fifty percent deposit was not paid." And the reason I say that is because when you say you. 
a person automatically starts feeling like something is yeah. wrong with them. Yeah. And when I, when you just say the deposit was not paid. And so, but I was really wanting to make sure that I was very careful about the way that I gave that feedback because I, I didn't want it to then come across as me criticizing her. So, so how do you do it when you, when you have to criticize your kids? Well, you know what? I, I, I do it that way a lot. And I, I always look for teaching moments because I, I love, I, I'm a, perpetual student myself. Mm. And when I had mentor, I had a great mentor once in my life in my early days, and I, I just loved to learn at his feet. So I've, I've tried to just, you know, as someone said, send the elevator back down, right? Right. So I, I really, you know, we have a lot of meetings about our company. And, and when we have moments like that, I may say, hey, you know what, another way to handle that might have been this way, and you might have got to let's talk about this. I'm a big let's analyze the moment because I mean, look, <laughs> this is my radio show, you know, you, you get a sense of who I am. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, so I'm always analyzing the moment, even in myself. I'll say, you know what, I had a meeting with Baba, but didn't go well today, and here's where I think it went off the rails, right? And I'll have that conversation with, oh, with the whole team so that it's a learning experience for all of us. So I'm always looking to teach, but I think how one phrases the moments, a teaching moment is whether it'll be absorbed or it'll be, uh, um, you know, repelled by somebody because they take it personally, as opposed to just a teaching moment. I agree. I, you know, I used to uh, produce musicals and, and direct musicals years ago. And uh, I remember one time during one of our rehearsals, I had just given some feedback to this guy, Sean. And uh, after I'd finished, he said, yeah, okay, yeah, I got it, cool. And then I said, okay, guys, let's get uh, on to the next scene. And as everyone's moving around the stage to get to the next scene, Sean goes, you know, you want to know the one thing I love about Stuart is that he basically tells you that you're total shit <laughs> and makes it believe like it was your idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? That That's a sign of a leader, not a boss. I used to always say about my, uh, that creative director I had early in my career named Trevor Goodgall, who was really my mentor. Mm -hmm. He had this ability, <clears throat> which was very interesting to me is, you know, we would go present work to him. And if he didn't like the work, he had a way about him that he would send you back to your office on fire to start all over again. <laughs> right. And I didn't find that in any other creative director I worked with. <clears throat> Usually it was just resentment on the way back to your office. That's to right. Start again. Oh, that's he had this way of, of just, making you rethink it or plucking the, the one little diamond out of the out of the rough of your idea to say that's inside like your first line of copy is the idea right not your idea you know you go oh god you're right there it is like he was able to to do that so you run back to your office to start all over again you were never felt angry and our work was just so so good as a result of that and that's that was a great leader. And you know where an area that people could actually take what it is we're talking about and apply it to and, and really give a lot more thought to is just the relationship you have with your uh, intimate partner and recognizing that you are going to continuously have disagreements. That's what two people living underneath one roof do. Um, and if you can just fee find a way to really argue well with each other to um, disagree uh, in creatively. style creatively. Yeah. Yes, you. you I, I agree with that, Stuart. I'm a huge believer in that. I think you. I think you want people with different opinions around the table. I, I think you don't want to be, you know, in a cul-de-sac of ideas. You really <laughs> right. want to. Uh, you want happy collisions happening. So I think you, if you're, 
your spouse has a different point of view on a number of things. I think it's a good thing because you'll go, you know, my wife and I have that all the time. I'll go, why do you, why do you feel that way? Mm. And then she'll tell me, and I can be, I'll tell you something. I can be swung over to the opposite point of view if someone presents me with an idea in an articulate way. I can go from, I can do a 180. Right. So I'm always open to hearing another point of view. Always. I think that that, if, if any relationships ever frustrated me, it's been relationships that aren't growing. And my perspective is, is that when we get to a place of disagreement, let's not look at each other and think, oh, maybe we're not meant to be because we disagree on this topic. Let's rather say, hey, you know, can we influence the other person to see this from a completely different perspective so that we then get to grow and thus um, solidify our own relationship in the process. Yeah, I agree. I, and I think I think even coming at a problem from two different angles that you both want to achieve is another sub uh, subsection of that. Right. You know, where I, I might be the, the, the glorious risk taker and my wife is the one that's kind of tapping the brakes on, on projects and and together we'll we'll achieve it in a in a much better way, right? Just because you know it's a yin and a yang going on there. You know, I um I was at a wedding years ago in in New York City. My one of my good friends Annie, and she's a love coach, and she's one of the best in the world. And she and her husband, as they were putting their rings onto each other's fingers, and they were saying their vows, they said something to each other that, that will never leave me. And they said, "And with this ring, I set you free." Wow. And I just thought, wow, so powerful in the sense that I don't own you. I don't control you. I yeah. want you no to No love, have... honor, and obey. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I want you to have your thoughts. I want you to have <clears throat> your perspectives. I want you to be you, and I will observe you in our arguments. I'll observe you in our good times. I'll observe you in all moments and, and look for those opportunities to grow from it. Um, well, okay. Now, now we're going on to relationships. That goes, that goes with any partnership. That's even in business, not not just in 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 a, in a marriage. That that rule, all those rules you just went through, apply to even a business partnership. I believe. Well, you're absolutely right. And and, and speaking of which, actually, I want to talk to you about one of the things within your business that keeps you most busy and, and how you do navigate through that space. Because I know it's not just you producing it. You have a team uh, yeah. under the influence. I mean. I can't tell you how many times I've been driving back from uh, you know, a late night speech in Kingston, Ontario, and I'm listening to that incredible show. I really, genuinely, I'm not just saying this, I really love your show. Um, and so, first of all, I want to ask you, why do you do your show? There's a good question. <clears throat> I have to think about that for a second because it had a funny beginning in that at Pirate, when I was still at Pirate, I would put on a – every year, I would put on a radio – creative radio seminar Okay. where I would invite 200 young copywriters to come out. I'd rent a theater in downtown Toronto. I would, I would feed them breakfast. I would feed them lunch. I would have an open bar at the end of the day, and I would stand on that stage, do it for seven hours, and I would teach them how to create effective, smart, creative radio. Wow. I would give them every secret I have ever learned in the business. I would give it away. Wow. And, um, and I would do that every year. And I did that for many, many years. And then one day I was out to lunch with two friends of mine who were also in the radio business. And they said to me, one of them said to me, hey, you know that, that creative radio seminar you do every year? And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, that would make a great radio show. Oh. And I said, 
who would ever run that? And he <laughs> paused for a moment. He said, I think CBC would. And I said, the advertising free CBC would run a show about advertising. <laughs> and he said, I think they'd run that one. And we had a good laugh and we were having a couple of beers in the sunshine. And then mm -hmm. I went home and I couldn't get it out of my mind. And then about two days later, one of the other guys, or three of us, Mike Tennant called me up. He was at that lunch too. And he said, I can't get out of my mind what Larry said to you. And I said, me neither. Wow. He said, you want to go pitch that to CBC? And I said, yeah, let's do that. So literally, we, we he had, Mike had a connection to CBC. We got a, managed to get a meeting with the head of CBC Radio, which is pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and we pitched the show idea, really not thinking they would ever buy it in a million years. I figured as we went up in the elevator that day, I said to Mike, I, I think they'll say, interesting idea, not for us, but maybe we can do something else together, that that would be a good meeting. Okay. So we, uh, we went up to the meeting, we gave them literally a one page pitch and my pitch was very simple. It was really something like advertising is like architecture. It's everywhere in your life and most people hate it. They despise <laughs> it, they find it annoying and intrusive and they wish it would go away. When in reality, advertising is a fascinating business because it's the study of human nature. And I said, Mike and I are not journalists, we're not pundits, we're not academics, we're working ad men in the trenches. We know what we're talking about and we have access. And we wanna take people, give them a backstage pass to the closed world of advertising. That was the whole pitch, Stuart. You just heard the whole pitch. What was their, what was their like, like even their body language and facial expression after you said that? Well, this is the funniest moment. There was a huge pause in the room. Mm -hmm. And then Chris Boyce, who was the head of CBC Radio said, We'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> that fast? Yeah, and uh, and it was like the dog had caught the car because the next beat of that, well, Mike and I had to figure out how the hell to do a radio show. <laughs> that is something else. Yeah, so that was, uh, that, was the, that whole moment. So you've asked why we do the show. I mean, it was, it was really just a, you know, it's about being bold. It was a bold thing to go up to CBC and get a meeting with the, you know, the head of CBC radio and then pitch a radio show. And right. like it takes, you know, when I think back, because we really didn't have much to, to offer other than our experience. We weren't, you know, radio show experts. Mm -hmm. We had never done a radio show, as a matter of fact. <laughs> right. But that, you know, I think fortune favors the bold. I look back on that moment and that's why it started. And then going on i i always knew that the in the industry was fascinating like i just i just knew it i, I just love it i'm a student of the business mm -hmm. i'm fast the stories are never ending that's why even after 14 years here's the math on this Stuart. so we're finishing our 14th season on cbc and if there's an internal structure to my show which you may or may not be aware of and that is i tell six stories a show okay so if you do the math we've just crossed 300 episodes oh this my God. year. So it's 1,800 stories. Yeah, that I've told. 1,800 stories? Are you telling me you've, dealt, you've told 1,800 stories yes. that are real stories? That are real stories. And here's the thing, Stuart. In this wonderful business that I'm in, the stories are never ending. Wow. Like that's, that's the easiest part of mounting that show is finding incredibly interesting stories because my industry pumps them out every day. Wow. That, so, so when you say you're looking for a story, so you have your theme for that particular show, and then do you first go through your own kind of mental Rolodex of stories that you have around that theme? Yeah. Okay. So that'll be my first stop. And, uh, and I'm, a, I'm a voracious reader. 
So I'm always I make notes on every single I must I probably read I don't know what what the number of books I might read between fifty and sixty books a year maybe something like no, that. Good for you. And I make notes on everything I read. Every yeah copious notes on everything I read and I keep them in a, on a in a digital file. I'm constantly cutting out magazine articles and newspaper articles and scanning them and then putting them into my digital archive with hashtags so I can find them a year from now. Here's the thing: I, you might tell me a great story today, Stuart, mm-hmm. and I may not use that story for five years. Wow. But when I when I use that story, it is the perfect story for that moment so are so you continuously I, I'm, going over it like are, do you you have this digital file do you just once in a while just go oh, yep. just do a little reread on some of my notes i do i i do pour over them quite a bit and because i'm a story hunter and i also as you said like i've got a you know almost two thousand pages of digital archives of things i've read and collected so you you constantly need to do a little gardening and go through it and make sure that you're remembering everything that's in there right. but i also i mean just I mean, Command F is the is the greatest gift to someone like me. So if I'm trying to find stories on customer service that I've collected over the last 14 years. Command F is a wonderful thing. Right. right. So, um, how do you find the time to read that often? How do you do? How do you make it happen? Um, I'm a power reader, so sometimes I'll even have to read a, 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 an entire book for one episode of my show that I have to do. I have to write the sh- read the book, write the show, produce the show all in a week and a half. Oh my god! So I'm a I'm a pretty I wouldn't say quick reader, but I'm I'm a I can get through a book pretty quickly and and really absorb it. So I'm you know I'm tucking it into moments. I'm reading. You know, half of my plane flight from Vancouver is a book and the other half is writing the show or I'm reading in the in the hotel room. I read every night before I go to bed. That's that's how I get to sleep is I I'll read for 45 minutes, then turn the light out. So I'm always and I always have five books on the go at a time. Okay. so, you know, whatever room I'm in, that's the book I pick up and, and continue reading. Oh, I see. So you actually but you do carve out like, you know, for sure that every day, at least for before you go to bed. Yeah, you'll be you'll be reading, but then yep. you kind of just hope that the other moments will spring up throughout the day, where you're like, oh, yep. I've, I've got okay, so I'm on a plane, I can, okay, because I carry a book, I carry a book with me in my in my briefcase all the time. Okay, because I remember reading one time that all the great business leaders uh, they said that they dedicate at least uh, bare minimum five hours of learning uh, a week uh, to yep. every week, and it's probably more, but they said they, if if a week has gone by and they have not. Uh, been learning something new for at least five hours that uh, it's been somewhat I wouldn't call it a wasted week but they've a missed opportunity well if you if you do the math on what I just said that's probably I probably clock in at about that in reading time a week if not a little bit more jeez that's that, that is something that I've really identified that I I want to do more I even started doing the the the, book, the audiobooks for that reason yeah and uh, I found them really yeah, driving is a great time to do that because you I mean you can listen to music for two hours or you can take in a great podcast or a great book why wouldn't you do that I know I know yeah just otherwise it's just it is it, it's a missed opportunity so are you surprised then when you think about under the influence how okay so you got the thumbs up from the head honcho over at CBC but Obviously, you went home that day and thought, we still need to get listeners. We still need to have people who are going to want to hear this. Did And, and now 14 uh, seasons later, you have a huge following for that show. Does it Did it surprise you that people outside of advertising were interested <laughs> in it? Well, you absolutely, because as fascinating as I find it, the question was, because our show is not aimed at marketers, right? Our show is aimed at the average Canadian. Mm. When marketers like it, it's high praise, but it is not aimed at marketers. So when the first episode aired, 
which was then – so CBC took us on. Here's what they did. When they said we'll take it, they took us on as a summer replacement show. Okay. So for July and August, for eight weeks, we, were, we would be put on air when one of their bigger shows went on hiatus. Mm-hmm. And we were thrilled at that. We were just absolutely thrilled. So right. when the first episode aired in 2005, Mike and I braced ourselves for the blowback. <laughs> right. Because here were two ad guys talking about consumerism and advertising on, you know, the the advertising free CBC. And so we braced ourselves and we were unbelievably shocked at how wonderful the feedback was. The feedback was how interesting. Tell us more. I like this new show. Wow. Never thought of it from that point of view before. Like it was unbelievably wow. warm and encouraging and curious. Interesting. And the 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 feedback got so uh, big at some point that CBC told us while we were probably on maybe week six of our eight weeks that they were going to keep us on. Oh, you already knew. Yeah, but we knew before the end of the eight weeks. But that was really the the wonderfulness of the CBC audience that really that really rescued us there. And what do you find that these non-ad people most often like about your show? Because I know what I like about it, but what is it that you hear most often from people? Well, it's the storytelling. Okay. They it they respond to the stories, and I think beyond that. One of, well, you know, Stuart, one of the funniest uh, recurring emails that I constantly get for 14 years now is this. Hate advertising, love your show, still hate advertising. <laughs> Which is kind of funny to me because it, say, it says to me that as people hate advertising, uh, you know, in general, but they love specific ads, right? Right, yeah. So I think people love to hear what goes on behind the, the making of a campaign or a brand or what the insight is into human nature, as I mentioned earlier, that they find that endlessly fascinating, <clears throat> the same way I find it fascinating. Right. And I think that's what keeps people glued to it, I think. It, it's true. It, we, we, we do love the stories, and we see ourselves sometimes in these stories, which is what we love the most quite often. Um, it, do you feel now, though, that... Um, is there, do you still get jazzed 14 seasons later? Do you still have the passion? Do you still, uh, do you still find yourself learning? Oh, first of all, I love it still. It's, I call it joyful stress. <laughs> it's uh, a weekly show is a really, really tough thing, especially the amount of research our show entails. That That's the toughest part of it. Right. But I love doing it. And I always find that I'm learning. I, I would, I not for a moment do I think I've got a handle on marketing, and I've been doing it for nearly forty years. I have what uh, one of my favorite UFC fighters is Georges Saint Pierre, who just retired. I think he's maybe the greatest UFC fighter of all time. Okay. I was reading his book, by the way, which is so good. I recommend it to everybody to read because his lessons about life are unbelievable. But he says, and I steal this now. He says he always maintained a white belt mentality. Oh, what's that? Well, in martial arts, black belt is the highest level and white belt is the beginner. Right. Level. So he maintains a white belt mentality, meaning even though he's like a, you know, a fourth degree black belt in jujitsu, his mindset is I'm a beginner. Wow. He's that humble. I, he's that humble. But I feel the same way. I feel – I can all I'll pursue an episode on something I know a lot about and then I'll, I'll that'll be a lot of fun to put together. But a lot of the episodes I'll pursue because I know nothing about it. Right. I know nothing about direct mail because I didn't really work in that sphere of marketing or whatever. And, and through the whole building of that show, I'll be learning. 
See, you really throw you really throw yourself into the pit in many areas in your life. I've, I've in this conversation and, and uh, I've heard this quite a bit. Where even starting pirate radio or even starting that event where you'd bring two hundred copywriters out to teach them what it is that you knew. I mean, you didn't necessarily know people are going to show up, but you didn't even no. necessarily know if you're going to lose money. And and then, of course, the big one, throwing yourself into uh, starting your own radio show. And I'm sure you felt this the very first time you wrote your very first book, which is, who am I to, to, to be an author, as, yeah. as we all feel. Um, what would your advice be to people listening to this right now um, who are thinking about taking that plunge, who are thinking about uh, starting something new that just feels like so out of their comfort zone? You know, one thing that's that's given me comfort over the years, because even, by the way, ju- jumping back a beat, when I was leaving agency life, so I had a very successful career as a copywriter, and I, I decided I was going to start my own business, which mm-hmm. was a radio production company at the time. The president of the agency pulled me aside that I had just resigned to, and he said, you know something, Terry, you'll never make money producing radio commercials. You know that, right? And... And so there it was again, you know, another roadblock put up. But in my heart, I knew he was wrong right. or I felt he was wrong. So the thing that that has been kind of a warm blanket to me on all the beats in my life where I took risk, like starting a company or starting, a, you know, buying four recording studios in New York City or starting a radio show or building a house because the house I'm in right now we built, whatever those things are, the thing that's always comforted me is jump and the net will appear. Yes. And I've really, really, someone said that to me many years ago and I've always taken that to heart. And what I, how I interpret that is if you feel in your bones that the, this risk or this challenge or this decision is right, if you've done your homework, if you spot the gap in the market and you're, you're convinced there's a market in the gap, then I say do it. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the things I say is um, start anywhere because anywhere is a place and anywhere will lead you everywhere. Yeah. And a lot of people, they, they, they think that they need to see the entire picture before they start. And I don't think any of us see the entire picture. We just, no. we just know that there's something here and when and we start and then the picture ends ends up being drawn as we keep moving through the steps um but there's one thing though that i've really picked up on as well during this conversation and i think it's something that's missed with a lot of people and that is yes you've taken the leap yes you followed your heart and yes you knew that there was an opportunity to to be fulfilled but there's one thing that's so clear about you is that you have worked your ass off to make it happen. Yeah. I mean, whether it's reading 50 books a year, whether it's you know after your kids be, are put to sleep and staying up until three o'clock in the morning, uh, or if it's um, you know making ha- having conference calls while you're in the car, you've really worked so hard to make that happen. And 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 I know we're coming to the end of this conversation, so I, I want to make sure I don't miss this. Can you talk to that? Because I'm sure you've seen many people in your own career who maybe haven't put in that work and, and, and are still left wondering why they didn't make it. Can you talk about hard work? Well, that's a very interesting thing you bring up. Um, <clears throat> you know, everybody has gifts that they're given in life. I think one of the gifts I was given was just discipline. Right. And I might even trace that back to martial arts. So I, I've been a martial artist most of my career, most of my life. I've had spurts where I'm on and off it, but 
I began in the martial arts in my teens. Okay. And it, it involves enormous discipline because it ain't easy. Yeah. And you have to drag your ass to class, you know, two or three times a week when you really want to go home, put your feet up and open a beer. Yeah. And there was, there's something that that instilled in me because I feel I can carbon date it right to my teens where I understood or I was I was shown what discipline is and what it can mean to you to your life if you can master it. And I think when I look back on my career, I, I really think discipline had a huge part to do with whatever level of success I've attained because it did involve working till three in the morning and it did involve. You know, even when I fly to Europe to see my daughter, everybody's sleeping on the plane. I got my light on. I'm working in the, in the plane, you know, and then I've right. lost a whole night's sleep by the time I get over there. <laughs> right. But I've always, it's just, I don't know, it's, I, I just, ha- I have to work that hard to make it work. It's just, and I'm, I'm, I'm up for the challenge. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll be 60 this year. Mm-hmm. And I think I, um, I don't think I've ever worked harder in my life. And I have friends my age who are retiring because we're, you know, we went through school together. They've done their, they've had their careers, and now they're retiring. And and when we get together, they say you're ramping it up. <laughs> you know? So, but I, I love it, and I, I working hard is really fulfilling for me. It's not a, it's really not a hardship. Right, right. You know, it's funny. I remember that you just reminded me. I, I sat down with a woman years ago. This is when I was producing these musicals, and she she'd asked me if I'd have a coffee with her, and. Uh, she said, I just would love to talk to you about this musical that I've written and get your, your take on it. And I said, absolutely, I'd be happy to mentor you. And we sat down for the coffee and I said, so tell me about this musical. And she said, okay, well, uh, it's called Canned. And I said, okay, great. Uh, what, what's that about? She's like, well, about the idea of being canned, being, you know, let go from your job. I'm like, okay. And um, she says, and so I have this idea that maybe there'd be this opening scene where a boss fire somebody and then like dancers come in from the left and the right and then that would be the opening scene i said okay yeah what else do you have and she said well that's what i have (laughs) (laughs) and i said okay well i'm not sure where i could help you and then it dawned on me oh you want me to write your musical like uh-huh. it, it, it very it wasn't long after me asking a few more questions where she started saying, "Well, what do you think I should do here?" And then, "What? How do you think I should go from there?" And I'm thinking, "Oh, I thought you'd written a musical." Right. And it's so often in my life I found myself in that situation where somebody wants me to do their work. Yeah. They they see somebody who's been successful at something, and they think, "Well, they know how to do it. Well, maybe they could do it for me too." And I, for that reason, I have very little sympathy for people who complain about not making their dreams come true because quite often you you realize that they were hoping that just maybe a, uh, a risk of $10,000 and six months worth of work would be enough to get them there. Yeah. And uh, it's it's always so much more, isn't it? There's that great, I don't know, it was Jack Nicholas, the golfer, or whoever said that, that line, that the harder I work, the luckier I get. <laughs> and it's right. just so true, right? It's really, it's they're, they're, they're si- the Siamese twins of life is hard work and then seizing opportunities when they when they arise because you and the reason you you're able to seize the opportunity is because you're ready. That's right. Yeah. You put you, the you put the 10,000 hours in, right? That's it. Yeah, I I I saw an uh, an interview with Will Smith recently where the person who was interviewing him was giving him all kinds of accolades and saying, "Oh, you're so great and you've won all these awards and you're the one of the hottest actors in in the industry." 
And he said, look, you know, I very much appreciate that. And, and thank you for your kind words. He says, but I want to just be very clear on something. He says, I'm actually really not that much more talented than a lot of other performers out there and a lot of other actors and, 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 and rappers. He said, the only difference between me and them is that I just worked harder. Yeah. And he said, you know, when you were eating, I was working. When you were sleeping, I was working. Yeah. And it really stuck with me. And he said, that's what causes you to be interviewing me and not somebody else right now. I, I, I cannot tell you how much I agree with that. I think persistence and discipline will will carry you across the finish line and talent might just leave you at the halfway mark sometimes. That's right. That's right. Well, look, at Terry, I could talk to you for hours and uh, and I know that uh, you do have a lot of work to do, so I won't, I won't take up <laughs> Well, it's, you know what, Stuart, it's been a joy. It's been a terrific conversation. Oh, I really enjoyed it. It's so nice. Before I let you go, tell, uh, tell all the listeners you know, what you're up to these days. I know you've, you're looking at maybe writing a new book. Uh, you've got uh, other things. You've got a new podcast company. Let everyone know about what you're working on so they can follow you there. Yeah, so uh, beyond the radio show and the podcast, uh, we're starting a podcast company because I I think there isn't really a great podcast company in this country right now that really is like a podcast network. So I really want to start. I want to start creating podcasts. Then I want to have pitches from people outside and out in the world who have podcast ideas because we know how to do them. We know how to market them. We've got studio facilities. We've got the entire package. So that's a big part of what we're doing now. Um, and I'm writing my third book, which I won't say too much about that yet, but I'll just, I'll say it's about magnificent second acts. Okay. I'll see. <laughs> I'm intrigued. Yeah. And, um, and th- those are the two big things on the horizon be- besides all the other things we have constantly going on, like the, like the show and my speaking career, et cetera. Well, you know, for those of you who are listening right now, if you have not had the chance to uh, read Terry's books or to listen to his show on CBC um, or to see him as a speaker, for those of you who do hire speakers in the corporate market, he is not just somebody who takes all of it quite seriously, but um, he takes it he, – he, he does it in a way that's genuine. And that's one thing I really love about you, Terry, is that – You've been as successful as you've been, and yet you're still such a just regular guy and who has just such a lovely zest for life. And I, I really do mean this. The world, the world is better having you in it. Well, thank you, Stuart. That's high praise indeed. Well, thank you for being on the show, my friend. And um, we look forward to having you back on the show in the future. Until then, I wish you nothing but the best with your future endeavors. Thank you, Stuart. Same to you. Thank you for tuning in to the Stuart Knight Show. We hope you've enjoyed this powerful conversation. People are fascinating, and so are you. And the right questions will prove it.